Amen. Okay, well, if you guys want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, that's where we'll pick up Acts chapter 22 last week, or I guess last time we were together, um, where we were at was the Apostle Paul had finally made his way to Jerusalem. Um, he was in the midst of his third missionary journey. He had been trying to make it um, to Jerusalem, but due to the plots of the Jews and, and due to God's providence, um, he had quite the struggle to get back to Jerusalem, but um, he's finally made it there. And if you remember uh, from chapter 21, um, as he arrived in Jerusalem, and he was greeted by the church there, he was greeted by uh, James and the elders, at the church there in Jerusalem, you remember what happened there? They asked him, uh, they asked him to take part in a Nazarite vow uh, because they were very worried of, of how the Apostle Paul would, re, would be received by the Jews. So they asked him to take part in a, in a Jewish vow, uh, which the Apostle Paul uh, was willing to do. We know that the Apostle Paul was really willing uh, to do anything necessary. Uh, to remove stumbling stones so that he could present the gospel to people. And so the Apostle Paul was willing to take on this, this Nazarite vow. He was willing to give up his liberty, this liberty that he had not to, uh, not to partake in, the, in, the, in these acts in the Mosaic law, uh, but he did submit himself to it. And then as we saw, unfortunately, um, even though he tried to pacify the Jews this way by uh, taking on a vow, as soon as he stepped into the Jewish temple to offer the sacrifice that went along with that vow, the Jews immediately seized him, and they began to beat him. And uh, Acts chapter 21, verse 31, actually says that their intention there in the beating was to kill him. Their intention was to, to kill the Apostle Paul um, due to his teachings, due to his teachings in and uh, his spread of the, of the gospel of grace and to the Gentiles, as we'll see. But, uh, yeah, they were trying to beat the Apostle Paul to death. Uh, the Romans overlooking the city of Jerusalem actually intervened and, and actually rescued Paul from this beating. And, uh, and so where we ended off was Paul was in custody uh, by the Romans, and he actually made this request to the Roman commander who had arrested him. He asked that he may be able to speak to the people who were beating him. And incidentally, the, the Roman commander actually allowed the Apostle Paul to speak to the Jews who were, who were so in, in, in rioting against him and were beating him. And uh, the commander allowed the Apostle Paul to speak to them. And so that's really where we pick up here in Acts chapter 22. Um, in the NASB, it's titled, Paul's Defense before the Jews. That's what Acts chapter 22 is entitled. And uh, so what this is going to be starting from here on, this is going to be the first of five defenses that the Apostle Paul is going to give here in the remainder of the book of Acts. We're going to see the Apostle Paul get passed around from, from leader to leader, and he's just going to be continually defending himself and his ministry, his calling, his gospel, these types of things. Um, that's what we're going to see the Apostle Paul do from here on out in the book of Acts. Um, so what Paul's defense ends up being here in Acts chapter 22, um, as he's actually getting to speak to these Jews, what he ends up doing is basically just recalling uh, the, his personal history. He recalls his personal history. He recalls his conversion and how his conversion happened. 
Um, basically, everything that we read in Acts chapter 9 when Luke described Paul's conversion, Paul just retells the story here in Acts chapter 22 uh, to convince the Jews that um, everything that's happened to him, his calling, his conversion, it's all of God. It wasn't of him. Um, Paul's conversion wasn't anything that actually he was seeking. Um, the Apostle Paul was actually seeking to kill Christians. He wasn't seeking to uh, be a Christian. So he, he gives his conversion story explaining that this was all of God. It wasn't even of him. Um, so since I think, since we've already basically covered Acts chapter 9 and Paul's conversion, uh, actually we did it in detail there in Acts chapter 9, I thought what we would do with Acts chapter 22 was take just a couple of verses from Paul's defense here, and, and we'd actually work on our defense. Paul here is giving his defense of the faith. I thought we would take a couple of, actually a couple of tough verses, I think, in Acts chapter 22 and work on our defense of the faith, right? Um, the word that Paul uses here is called his apologia. Does anybody know that word, apologia? Probably a few of you do. Apologia. Right? Does anybody know what that word means? The Greek transliterated. Transliterated. Um, to English. I don't know how to do that. Uh, apologia. Yeah, you can hear the word, right? You can hear the word, right? So it would be A P O probably O G I A. Right. Yeah. Apologia. Transliterated in English. But you can hear. What does that word uh, bring to mind? Is anybody familiar with that word? Apologetics. Apologetics, right? That's where we get the word apologetics, which uh, Brother Jason took us through a whole class on that already in Sunday school, <coughs> which is just basically giving a defense. Giving a defense. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. Chapter 22, verse 1 says, uh, Brothers and fathers, hear my defense which I offer you. Hear my apologetic for my uh, faith. Um, so I thought with, with just that in mind, we'd work on all our, our apologetics since we've already looked at Paul's conversion. You're all familiar with his Damascus Road experience right, in, in, in Christ's coming. Okay, so the first issue that I want to look at actually has to do with um, Christ's appearance to the Apostle Paul. Um, I want to look at the wording that, you, that Luke uses here to describe this appearance of Jesus to Saul, as he was at that time, and, and, and the traveling companions that Saul had with him. Um, Acts chapter 22, verse 9 is the actual verse that I want to look at. Um, the reason I want to look at it and, and cover this is because in some older versions of the Bible, does anybody here have maybe a King James or a New King James with them? It's not good. Well, no. Um, I have a text here, but let me read to you um, how the King James Version uh, 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 translates this verse. And uh, I just want to expose you to an issue that, that's come up. Uh, I've seen it come up several times. Um, and so I thought I would make you aware of it, um, just expose you to this, to this text, because it's really one of the very few texts that, you know, Brother Wally, Jason, Emilio, you know, you'd be out there on the streets preaching, and everybody's always got to throw out, you know, the Bible's full of, of contradictions. You know, we don't know how you Christians can believe the Bible. It's just full of contradictions. Well, I always think the best thing to do in that situation is, well, can you give us one? And normally never. Never do they even have an example. They're just throwing that out there, hoping the Bible's not right so they don't have to repent. You know, but um, that's very common. But this text right here is one of the very few times that somebody has 
um, throwing it out there to me. Like, oh, no, the Bible does have contradictions. It contradicts itself right on the face value. And so uh, this is a text that's been brought up. So let me just, re- since nobody has, uh, Brother Juan, do you, what Bible do you have? What translation? ESV. ESV, okay. Don't, okay, don't worry about it. Um, let me read what the King James says here. Now listen to the wording, because like I said, this is just Luke's retelling of Paul's conversion. So this is how Paul tells it first in Acts chapter 9, verse 7. He says, And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless. This is when the great light comes and and Saul falls off his horse. It says, The men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Right? Acts chapter 9, verse 7 says they were hearing the voice. They were hearing a voice. Okay, so now let me read to you Acts chapter 22, verse 9 in the King James Version, which is just the retelling of the same story. Here it says, And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. Right? So in the same retelling of the same story, in Acts chapter 22, verse 9, it says they did not hear the voice. They did not hear the voice. So would anybody just like to take a shot at how... How this is not a contradiction in the Bible, because in the same, it's, it's clearly the same retelling of Saul's conversion, Damascus Road experience. In one verse it says he heard the voice, and another verse says they did not hear the voice. Uh, does anybody want to take a shot at that? Maybe how you would try to... Yes, sir. I was just going to say, I think, like with uh, the ESV in chapter 9, or I'm sorry, verse 9, right. it says, now those who are with me saw the light, but not understand the voice of so my, I, how I would see that is they heard the voice, but they didn't hear the voice with understanding. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's right. I could hear, like maybe, perhaps, I don't know if this is the best interpretation, but I could hear a language. Perhaps I don't know the language, so I have no idea what's being said. Right. I'm, saying, I'm not saying that's the case here, but I'm just saying I could hear something and have no clue what's being said. Right. So did everybody notice that in, in the ESV and the NIV and the NASB, um, chapter 22, verse 9, it kind of, it, 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 it smooths this out for us. It says, and those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but they did not understand the voice. Where the King James translated, they did not even hear the voice. And so that's exactly what's going on there. Um, it all has to do with that word um, hearing, because it is the exact same word in both in both texts, it literally says hearing, not hearing, right? But um, it all comes down to really a semantical issue. Like the, 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 if you look this word up, hearing, akuo, in, in the lexicon, in the Greek dictionary, there's a wide range of meaning for that word. And so context is always going to determine which meaning you're going to give it. It can most certainly mean to hear anything. Akuo is the word. Does anybody realize maybe what English word we get from akuo when it comes to something to do with hearing? Acoustics. I think so. Yeah, you can hear it, right? Acoustics. So it has to do with hearing. Um, but there's such a wide range of meaning of, of how you hear that there's surely freedom to translate the word hearing as in you actually hear something or the way chapter 22 verse 9 translates it. And you probably have a note. Is there a, is there a, there's probably a note there in chapter 22 verse 9 um, next to the word understand, there is in the NASB, I have a little no- number one there by it. Um, in the note, if you go look at the note, it says to hear with comprehension. To hear with comprehension, just like Jason was saying. 
you know, they, they definitely heard something, the companions of Paul, they heard something, but they didn't understand what that voice was saying to the Apostle Paul. So, you know, no contradiction, just, um, you just have to take into consideration the, the, the wide range of meaning that that word can hear. Um, if you want to turn to John chapter 12, I think there's a, another similar instance of this happening um, that maybe if you just want to take it one step further, if you think you need to take it a step further with somebody, um, John chapter 12, verse 28 and 29 might be a good place to take them. John chapter 12, 28 and 29 says, Father, this is Jesus speaking to the Father, Father, glorify your name. And verse 28 says, Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then verse 29 says, So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoke to him. And so you see how a voice was clearly being said. We have the words here, exactly what it was saying. Um, I, I have glorified my name, I will glorify it again. But to the people it sounded as thunder. So they heard it, and they didn't hear it. You know, same same instance um, happening here with, with the people hearing but not understanding exactly what was being said. Um, have any of you guys had that brought up to you before? Um, I, remember, I remember actually the night that guy brought that up to me downtown Fort Worth and just by God's providence I actually had a book. Um, it's called uh, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. So I mean that's a, that's a great book. Um, it just deals with tough issues in the scriptures, each, each book, he dedicates some hard text from each book. I highly recommend that book to any of you just to go through and just apparent contradictions, just working out, you know, these apparent contradictions. Well, that would be an apparent, it's not a contradiction, but if you read the King James Version, just read those two verses, you're going to say, wow, maybe Luke got something wrong here. This doesn't make sense, right? So, okay, the second uh, apologetic issue that I want to look at in Acts chapter 22 here is that I want to look at the language. Um, if you remember from Paul's conversion, you remember Ananias? Jesus sent that man Ananias to the Apostle Paul to uh, lay hands on him, to uh, re uh, regain Paul's sight, to baptize him. I want to look at the language that Luke uses here to describe uh, what Ananias says to the Apostle Paul when he's telling him to be baptized, right? Um, look in Acts chapter 22, verse 16 now. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. It says this. Um, this is Ananias speaking to Paul who had just received his sight. Ananias says to Paul, Now why do you delay? Why do you delay, Paul? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Get up and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling upon his name. So how would you guys, uh, does anybody want to try to tackle that one? Uh, maybe somebody else besides our apologetics teacher, anybody want to tackle that question? What if somebody was to come up to you and point to Acts chapter 22, verse 16, and say, um, you must be baptized in order to get saved. Um, you, it's through the actual act of of going under the water, that is what actually washes away your sins. If you haven't done that, if you haven't been washed under the water, then, then your sins haven't been yet washed away. 
And what if they're pointing here to Acts chapter 22, verse 16, saying, look, this is what, this is what Ananias said to Paul. He needs, to, he needs to be baptized to wash away his sins. Anybody want to take a stab at that one? How would you, how would you deal with that text? I mean, we've dealt with the issue of baptism several times um, going through the book of Acts, but here, um, here's a little troubling verse for us who don't believe that baptism saves you, don't believe that the, the washing of the waters would actually remove the sin. Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Brother Wally, what are you going to... Brother Mike, raise his hand. He just saved you. You just got saved. <laughs> well, Mike. if you look at what he's saying here, uh-huh. now why do you delay, get us and be baptized, and wash away your sin? Mm-hmm. I believe that baptismal is more like an outward of showing or appearing that you are stepping up to the plate, so to speak, that you want to receive Christ mm-hmm. and be born again and repent of your sin. Mm-hmm. It's an outward of showing us. Here I am, I'm repenting, I'm turning away from my sin, I have a change of mind, now I'm going to do my thinking towards Christ, Jesus, mm-hmm. and I'm going to follow him by reading the word and stepping up to the plate. You see the bath of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and be washed in the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's something that's going to take away the sin and cleanse the sin of the blood covering. Right. Christ. Right. Now, regular water baptism is not going to handle it. That's just an hour of hearing or showing that, hey, I'm going to put on the uniform of God here now. Mm-hmm. I'm stepping up. I took the oath. I took the peace officer's oath, and now I am now a full-fledged peace officer under, under Jesus Christ. Right. So now I put on the uniform, which is a robe mm-hmm. of righteousness, and I'm stepping forward, and now I receive the blood covering, the cleansing of my sin, the washing away of my sin. So you're saying you could kind of appeal to the the overall doctrine of baptism and explain what, you know, maybe other biblical texts show baptism to be? Yeah, you could, you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Trish. Uh, Galatians 2, I would probably say Galatians 2, 16. Okay. 15 and 16 where it says that we're not justified by the law. Good. But, or by works. By works. But by faith. Right. So, um, and then, and then, um, uh, Right. Good. So you could appeal to the to the clear gospel message that you're not saved by anything you do, right? So, but what if people are saying, but look, that contradicts what Ananias is saying right here. Because Ananias isn't saying just believe Saul or Paul. He's saying. Uh, be baptized and wash away your sins. But there's more to the sentence. There's more to the sentence, right? Okay. What it calling on his name. Right. Which is what takes away your sins, not the baptism. Right. I think so. I think Wally's on to something there, grammatically speaking. I think everything y'all said is right. That's exactly what I had. You could appeal to the doctrine of baptism. You could appeal to the gospel, that it's by grace but through faith alone, apart from any works. You could appeal to all those things. Um, but I think here, specifically, just what Wally is saying here, um, grammatically, you, did you see at the very end of the sentence that calling on his name? That calling on his name is just a, a, a participial phrase, which um, it doesn't really get brought out in the English. That's why I think this is a tough text, because it doesn't get brought out in the English, um, some of the grammar behind that calling on his name, because that's an aorist participle. And what they teach you in first-year Greek is with an aorist participle, you can use helping words, is what they call it, in translating to bring out some of the, the meaning behind the word. 
And, and guess what the helping word is that, that mouse gives you in the very first year Greek class for an aorist participle? He says that you can use the word after donating, uh, connotating the time that, that the participle here, the calling on his name, relates to the verb. The verb here would be baptized. So he's saying a, a, a little, a, an expanded translation. I actually have a couple here that actually expand it for us. Um, but you could literally translate it, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins after calling upon his name, which would be a legitimate translation of an, of an heir's participle. Let me read to you the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. It's like a Southern Baptist translation of the Bible, Holman Christian. Look how they translate it. They say, and now why delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. Just linking just what Wally said there that, you know, bringing out the fact that it's the calling on his name that brings about the washing away of sins, not the baptism, right? I think that's helpful. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Kenneth Weiss' expanded translation of the Bible, which it's not a readable translation because all he's doing with that is he's bringing out every single nuance that the Greek language has, and he's trying to put that in English, which is unreadable because Greek has so many nuances, you don't translate everything. But here's a, sen a sentence in which I wish they would have. But listen to how he translates um, this participle here of calling on his name. It says, And now, why are you delaying? Having arisen, be baptized and wash away your sins, having previously called upon his name. Just bring in exactly what we talked about. There's a time uh, issue with that, that participle that it, it's, it's actually uh, connotating something that previously happens to the actual baptism. Wash away your sins, having previously called upon his name. Right? Yeah. Anybody, anybody is everybody okay with that text? Yes, Jason, yes, Sam? I was just going to ask, because I know there's various groups that have their different views on, within that text. Right. And I guess, I'm familiar with most of them, but what I haven't, I guess, encountered, where it says, rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. When they say, wash away your sins, are they always, or again, I guess it depends on the group. Mm -hmm. Typically, are they referring to past sins? Because if they believe they don't lose past sins, they might say dirty dishes, you continue getting dirty like sin, but you have to continually wash them away, future sins. That's a good point. What, right? Dirty dishes. I like that example. Their salvation is nothing but dirty Watch dishes. Watch the dishes last week. I said that Yeah. I mean, so the first person that ever confronted me with this was Church of Christ. Right. I met a couple who had actually just come out of Church of Christ, and they were saying that was one of the hard texts. I said, wow, I've never noticed that. That's a, that is a tough text, you know, so I've studied it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that Church of Christ, especially with their doctrine of, you know, the fact that you can lose your salvation, I would expect them pretty much every Sunday to come back and have to clean dishes. Yeah. You know, but I don't know. I don't think that they do that. I don't know. I don't know. Have to, you know, keep hitting it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you probably have to press them every time they sin. Yeah, they need to go wash dishes. They need to go wash their sins away through baptism because that's what Church of Christ, the old Church of Christ, believes that it's actually through the act of water baptism that that's where your sins get washed away. And this is one of their texts. Yes, sir. Isn't that the daily reading of the word, the washing of the mind, renewing the mind daily? Yeah. Reading the word, so that's a what yeah. the dishes would be, right? Yeah, that's right. Daily. Yeah. Except that they're not consistent with the baptism. They're not. Yeah, so that's a good point. Yeah, to, to hold them to. Yes, sir. I like the Holman translation. You like that? Because the Holman translation doesn't add any words. Mm-hmm. You know, um, right. Because that participle is a participle of means. I mean, mm -hmm. That's one way you can take it, by means of calling upon the name of the Lord. So just really you don't have to almost add anything to it other than understanding 
saying this is just giving you the means to do it, yep. right? Washing away your sins by calling upon the name of the Lord using the means by which forgiveness of sins comes. Yeah, I think that would be maybe the most a little easier for people to take that than a bunch of added words. Adding a lot of additives to the, yeah. the text. I mean, most texts, most commentaries on here, you know, just basically all kind of make the point of this is one of those grammatical issues that they don't translate it because like Emilio was saying, you don't want a bunch of added words in your text to explain because they'd all be in italics, you know. Everybody would see that oh, it wasn't even in the original. But, uh, but yeah, it would definitely um, be something that in your preaching, if you're preaching through this text, that you would have to explain to people the, the nuances of that, of that participle. That would be almost like a preacher's job to explain that. And so this would be one of those texts. Um, let me just read to you one more, one more verse. This is 1 Peter 3.21. I think is crucial text in, in <laughs> understanding the relationship of water baptism and, and salvation. Because that's another text, 1 Peter 3.21, that many people, I guess, use and they, they feel that teaches that it's the actual act of baptism that saves because it actually says here that baptism saves. 1 Peter 3.21 says, corresponding to that, Peter was talking about the whole um, salvation of Noah and his family. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. 1 Peter 3.21. I heard a guy recently just say that, and to him that was deciding the issue, that's baptism that, that cleanses sin. Baptism now saves you. Now, here, thank God that he had Peter explain what he means and what he doesn't mean, because he clarifies. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. So it's not the, it's not the physical act. It's not the physical washing. That's not how baptism can save, save anyone. But, but in what way can baptism save? It says, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Right? So if somebody was to respond to the gospel and to the call to baptism, which usually went hand in hand in the early church. I mean, they'd be standing out in the water like John the Baptist, you know. Peter would be saying, he'd be calling people to baptism as well, immediately. And so somebody could respond to the gospel in that way, not trying to receive forgiveness of sins by this physical act of washing away of dirt from their body, but in, in the response, like Brother Mike was saying, a response to the gospel of calling out to God for a good conscience, which is just faith. It's just, it's just how you communicate faith to God. Right? So Peter explains to us, it's, baptism says, well, it's not the, the physical act, but it's the calling out to God for good conscience, like you do when you repent. You call out to God for forgiveness of sins. Right? Everybody okay with that? Anybody had that text brought up to you before? Yes. Mm-hmm. You have? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Okay, so, um, so that's, that's us working on our defense. Let's get back to the Apostle Paul's defense here. Um, the Apostle Paul's defense, because... Another aspect of Paul's defense here that I found was interesting, um, as Paul here is, is actually has the opportunity to speak to the Jews who are trying to kill him. He's, he's been telling them about his conversion that happened on the Damascus Road, about how Ananias was to come to him and baptize him. What I thought was also interesting and very significant um, was at what point in Paul's speech do the Jews um, once again become enraged? Because remember, they were already literally trying to kill him. Um, he's had the opportunity to speak to them, um, and, and he has been speaking to them. He's basically been going through his whole testimony, his whole conversion. So in one sense, the crowd had calmed down to listen to him, 
And they had been listening, obviously respectfully enough for him to continue preaching. Um, but at some point here, we're going to see, they once again become enraged. And I just want to point out to you at what point in his, in his defense that happens. Because it wasn't as the Apostle Paul discussed his history as a Pharisee um, that the people became enraged. And it, and it wasn't even at the point that he talked about Jesus appearing to him. It wasn't even there that, that the crowd became enraged. But look at verse 21 to see where, where it was that these Jews uh, wanted to kill him again. Um, 22, or Acts chapter 22, verse 21, it says, And he said to me, this is Paul telling them what Jesus had said to him, um, Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22 says, they had listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Right? Very interesting, I thought, you know, that Paul had gone through his whole conversion. He had talked about Christ appearing to him, Christ the Lord. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're crucifying. The Jews actually even could handle all of this, but as soon as the Apostle Paul told them about his, his task and his calling to go bring salvation to the Gentiles, they wanted to kill him again. That's, that's nuts. I mean, it's really amazing how the Jews were, just seemed to be so self-righteous, so selfish when it came to God's grace that it, they couldn't deal with the fact that God was saving other people. They couldn't handle it. They, couldn't, they would rather become murderers and have bloody hands than, than amen the fact that God's saving other people. This is crazy. Um, yeah, this is kind of the emphasis that I tried to bring out in my sermon last week, you know, because a lot of the time in the New Testament, the, they're always using the language of, of God saving the world, God's saving all men. You know, I kind of talked about, well, that isn't, you know, what Paul wasn't saying in Acts um, 2.11, that God's saving every single individual in the whole world. The, the New Testament writers are trying to emphasize that God is not just saving Jews anymore, as he had in the past primarily. He just revealed himself to the Jews. Now, this gospel with Jesus, Acts 1.8, sending the gospel out to the entire world, that's what they're trying to emphasize, because these Jews wouldn't believe that. They didn't want to believe that. Um, I think as it's kind of seemed as we went through the book of Acts and we saw Samaritans and Gentiles being converted, it's almost like God had to prove it to the to the apostles themselves by manifesting the tongues and the prophecy and the spirit whenever these other people groups would be saved so that even the apostles would be confirmed, wow, God is saving Gentiles. This would have been an amazing a mystery, Paul calls it at some point, that God is going to save the Gentiles. This is a huge point in redemptive history here. And, uh, and so for these Jews, it was, it was really too huge. They didn't want to accept the Gentiles being saved. And so at that point, with Paul mentioned that, they, they got enraged again, and they wanted to kill him. Um, so, okay, so as we continue here, um, Paul, and continue with this questioning of the Apostle Paul and, and his defense, um, what I also what I thought was really interesting was that we see the Apostle Paul here about to utilize uh, the, the wisdom and the instruction that Jesus had given to his disciples when Jesus sent his disciples out to go preach the gospel. Um, if you remember from Matthew chapter 10 where he had told, Jesus told his disciples, he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents. Right? Jesus was instructing his followers to use this wisdom and this, um, 
discernment in how you interact with the people that you come to. You know, we see the Apostle Paul here about to make some very skillful moves um, as he's detained and as he's um, held under custody and is being questioned. And so the first move I want us to look at here, um, as obviously Paul's sensing a great anger from the Jews as they're once again enraged and, and, and in calling for his uh, death, um, Paul, Paul senses all this. And so what he's going to do is he's going to make, make an appeal to the law of the land uh, to avoid persecution in this, in this instance. Let's pick up in verse uh, 23. Acts chapter 22, verse 23, it says, And as they were crying out, this is speaking of the Jews who are now enraged, as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, this is how they were acting that, that God was saving Gentiles, Verse 24, the commander ordered him to be brought back into the barracks. Speaking of the Apostle Paul, bring him back in. Stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. Right? So the Roman commander, he doesn't get what the issue is. He doesn't understand, like, what's the big, you know, what's going on here? He doesn't understand the religious aspects to this whole debate between the Jews and Paul. He's trying to figure, even after hearing Paul's defense, he's still trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And, he, and the way he's going to figure it out is by scourging the Apostle Paul, getting the, getting the crack and talk. What has he done to, to make these Jews so angry? So that's what he's doing. He's getting ready to scourge him. Verse 25 says, But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the Roman centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Paul asked the question, is it okay for you to be scourging a Roman citizen? Which Paul was. And then look at verse 29, when Paul said this, verse 29, Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. You see, the Romans had this uh, great privilege, I guess you, you could say, this great, um, this great honor of, of not having to be uh, scourged, not having to be beaten, not even to be able to be put into chains without first um, having been found guilty uh, through a trial by the Romans. That's how, that's how they honored their citizens by saying, you know, if you're a Roman citizen, this, this will not happen to you. You will not be uh, publicly beaten. You will not be put in chains. Um, you're too good for that as a Roman citizen. That's for the slave. That's for the, the Jews or something. You know, but, um, so, so this is what um, the Apostle Paul uh, appeals to, this Roman law that they have, because the Apostle Paul actually was a Roman citizen by birth. Um, and so what I want us to notice from this also is how uh, the Apostle Paul uh, just freely availed himself of the Roman laws of the land. The Apostle Paul used and utilized the, the laws of the land uh, to protect himself. He, that's, what, that's what he did right here. So I thought just in the same way it would be a good reminder, especially for well, just being a Christian in general, this is probably going to come up soon, but um, you, you need to feel the liberty um, to use the law of the land that, that God and his providence has given to our country um, to protect yourself if you need to to protect your freedom of speech, your freedom of worship, you know, these things. Feel free to appeal, just as the Apostle Paul did, to the law of the land. 
And if we have questions about that, we can ask Brother Mike exactly what, what the laws are around here in some instances. But this could come in handy, you know, especially if you're out there open air preaching, you know, and, and, and the police may, may not be familiar with, with laws concerning that, and you may know them better than they do, you know, but you need to, uh, you know, be, what does it say, shrewd as serpents, you know, and, and wise with them, you know, discerning and, and, uh, what, is, what does Jesus say after that? I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, be shrewd as serpents, and then what does he say after that? Mild as a dove. Mild as a dove. Yeah. So both need to be there. Mild as a serpent. You know? Yeah, yeah that's right. So, yeah, so, so we can likewise uh, feel free to appeal to the law of the land to protect ourselves, just as the Apostle Paul did here. Um, really, that's what, God, like Romans 13 said, that's what government's there for, you know, for the, for the good. So it's, it's really intended there to be there to help you. Um, I even put a note here. Even lawsuits are permissible for Christians, right, it, with one exception. What's the exception in the scripture to Christians being able to sue someone? What does Paul explicitly say is not okay to, 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 your, to sue your brothers? Where, where does Paul talk about that? Anybody remember? The reference for that, not to sue, you're not allowed to sue brethren, you're not allowed to sue another Christian because of what it would do um, for the, to the gospel and so that unbelievers would see us acting like that. Does anybody know that text? First Corinthians chapter 6 is where he gives a pretty good discussion of that. You know, he's basically saying, don't you realize, can't, can't, is there no one godly in your church who can resolve these issues between brethren? Do you really need to go to unbelievers? And, in, and, and have them work these issues out for you. Is there no one godly in your midst, Paul says there? Mm. You know, really just um, shaming them for having taken issues to the worldly courts. Uh, we should be able to work our differences out amongst brethren with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and, you know, um, those types of things. So, yeah, I'll say, oh, yes, sir, Mike. Isn't that kind of an insult to God, too? Because, like, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, God, you're not wise enough smart enough to handle our indifferences here. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take it out of your hands and we're going to go to the ungodly man, a wretch, that's going to make the final decision. Right. Or whatever the case may be. Right. Yeah. That's enough to the leaders of the church. Yeah. Or assistant leader or whatever it may be. Yeah. To handle that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's shameful. You know, even in the same text, he says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels talking to the Christians? Don't you know that you're going to be given this authority to judge the world and you're having these ungodly people who, who are actually going to be judged, um, you're having them judge you? It just is totally out of, out of sync with, with Christian character and in the, in the honor and role that God has given the Christian. We should be, we should be, um, we should be able to, to, to manage these things. Um, so, okay, we've got time. So let's look at what I think is really Paul's next um, very skillful and timely uh, move that he pulls here. Um, this, is actually, this is actually going to move us into Acts chapter 23. But here on the next day, um, the Romans once again bring Paul before uh, the Jews. This time they actually bring them before the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, which the Jewish Sanhedrin was, was just a, a group of the, of the Jewish leaders who decided judicial issues when it came to the Jewish law and these types of things, but they were pretty much the, uh, the cream of the crop as far as those uh, in, the, in the Jewish religion. 
But the, the Romans bring them before the Sanhedrin, and once again, immediately, um, as they slap Paul in the face as soon as he begins to speak, um, he can tell that this likewise is not going to go well for him. He can tell immediately that the Jewish Sanhedrin is not there to actually listen to him. They're just simply there to con- condemn him. And so let's pick up in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, to see how Paul maneuvers um, his way out of this one, because this is pretty slick movie pulls here. Acts chapter 23, uh, 23, verse 6 says, But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And verse 7 says, as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the whole assembly was divided. Does anybody know what about Paul's statement would have caused this great division? The Apostle Paul's on trial but before the, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and it says as he's looking out, he notices that half of them are Sadducees, half of them are Pharisees, and so the Apostle Paul cries out, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. What, why, I mean, what's going on there? Anybody familiar with the situation here? Sadducees rejected it. Rejected the resurrection, mm-hmm. yep. Yep, the Sadducees re- rejected that whole idea that there's going to be this resurrection. But we'll just look at verse 8 and 9. It even explains it. It says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, just like Jason said, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And look at verse 9. And so there occurred a great uproar. And I like this part. It says, And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And so because of Paul's move here, you know, they're all con- there to condemn him. Now he's got half of them defending him. And we find nothing wrong with this man. You know, they're just trying to defend their view of resurrection. And so they basically, um, now the Apostle Paul has them arguing over whether there's spirits, whether there's angels, whether the resurrection is true. They've almost completely forgotten about him you know, and, then, and they're trying to kill him. I just thought that was a brilliant move by the Apostle Paul to, to pull that off. Um, okay, we can go on here a little bit. Uh, verse 11 says, here's kind of the results of this. Um, verse 11 says, but on the night immediately, immediately following this, the Lord stood at his side. This is speaking of the Lord coming to Paul's side that night. The Lord stood at his side and said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you, must, so you must witness at Rome also. And so there's really here another miraculous visit of Jesus Christ himself to the Apostle Paul in his, in his prison barracks. We're here, Jesus Christ gives the Apostle Paul um, really the game plan. He gives Paul his marching orders. Um, he gives the Apostle Paul this goal and the goal for the Apostle Paul now is to reach the city of Rome. That's what, the, that's what Jesus um, assigns the Apostle Paul to do. He now has this goal of, of getting to Rome. And Rome, if you aren't familiar with at that time, is, is the very center of the Roman Empire. 
and actually is really considered the center of all the known world at that time. Rome. All, lo all roads lead to Rome, they say. You know, Rome is the center. And so um, what we're really going to get to see from here on out is really we're going to see how God orchestrates um, this desire of his to get the Apostle Paul um, and his gospel to the center of the known world, to Rome. That's what we're going to see carried out here. God, God's going to orchestrate all this out to get the Apostle Paul from Jerusalem all the way to Rome so that the gospel can go there. That's what, that's what we'll, we'll see. But um, any questions? Yes, sir. I was just going to make a statement. Yep. I'm pretty encouraging in the last one where it says, uh, verse 11, uh -huh. where it says, following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. It's actually the Lord telling him that what he was saying were facts. Yeah. Not just, you know, subjective interpretation about what happens. The Lord calling them facts. Wow. To me, that's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, the Lord himself is affirming Paul's message, Paul's gospel. Yeah, you take some courage if the Lord showed up and good work, brother. Keep preaching. Do you know what I mean? Wouldn't that be encouraging? You'd say, okay, wow, I'm, I'm preaching it right. I got the gospel right. The, Lord's, the Lord himself is encouraging me. Let me keep preaching. Imagine the faith you have at that point. And the Apostle Paul does. It's going to be pretty amazing how from this point on, I think the Apostle Paul has been a pretty cool cat. I mean, he's, he's working the crowds. He's pulling off moves, dividing the, you know, he's, he's thinking. The Apostle Paul's not in panic mode, you know, as these people are trying to kill him. The Apostle Paul is full of faith, and especially, I think, as we go from here on out, we're going to see the Apostle Paul in some of his, in some of his answers to people and the way he um, presents the gospel and defends himself. The Apostle Paul is 100% sure that the sovereign Lord is going to get him to Rome. So he's not afraid of the, the governor. The, the, he's actually going to go to the, the Roman governor here in Caesarea. And he's not afraid of these people at all. The Apostle Paul knows that the Lord has him and that he has a purpose for him, and there's nothing that those people can do to, to detain him from that. It's pretty amazing. The Apostle Paul. Yeah. Okay, well, let's pray, and then we'll go to worship. Well, Father, Father, I thank you, God, for bringing us together once again. Father, I pray that you would bless our gathering. Father, that you would bless our church. Father, may your spirit move in our church, God. May we be encouraged. May we learn of you today, Father, um, through the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that you would be with Pastor Emilio, God, as his stomach is still bothering him from the trip to Mexico, Father. We pray that you would um, oversee his body, Father, as you can sovereignly control um, men and nations. A, a man's stomach is nothing for you to control, Father, so we ask you... Uh, to, to help Pastor Emilio to, to be able to preach to us, to not be distracted by uh, the uncomforts of being sick. Uh, Father, we pray you'd bless him. Um, bless us, Father, as we hear your word. God, I thank you for the Apostle Paul. Father, I pray that you would help us all to be able to um, see the Apostle Paul and to desire um, to be more sold out for you, to be more willing to suffer um, God, that to be um, gospel-centered in our thinking. Father, I pray that, that your gospel would govern our thinking and would, and would be uh, of, of primary consideration for us in our lives, that, 
that we would want to adorn your gospel with our good works, that we want your gospel to be clearly preached and to be spread, Father, and that we would use our resources, we'd use our time, we'd use our lives and our families, Father, for your glory and for your gospel, just as the Apostle Paul did. God, help us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.